0: good morning faith covenant church there we go my name is alex i have the privilege of being one of the pastors here today if you don't know we're going to be working out of first timothy so just as we go through some of the introductions and formalities you can go ahead and be turning there i hope you brought your bible so that you can follow along now as you've find your spot. We have started this new series, which we're calling House Rules. You have them, I have them, your parents had them, your grandparents had them. And as it turns out, the church has them, or perhaps more accurately, we should say God has some house rules. Uh, We're reading this letter the Apostle Paul sent to a younger man named Timothy, in which he's giving exhortation and recommendation of the things that should be encouraged and discouraged in the life of a Christian person. These are some of the house rules of God, if you will. Now, two weeks ago, we started the series and we considered as part of that the life of Paul, his pedigree, his school of thought, his teacher Gamaliel, and how through his persecution of the church, through the powerful transformation of his life through his conversion and the work he did afterwards, spreading the gospel through all of that. And you look at what he did. He is unequivocally, I hope I'm using that word right, he is unequivocally qualified to give advice this is an apostle who is not chosen by a group of elders in a church but was directly appointed by jesus christ then last week we looked at timothy the recipient of this letter a young man who from what we know was timid and seemed to have some gastric issues which, uh, if you think about it, I'm sure Timothy would wish that this was not a detail about his life that would be passed on for the next 2,000 years. This is a young man who had spent time with Paul previously, learning from Paul, and had spent a lot of time specifically on the third missionary journey of Paul. And he was put into this position at Ephesus as one qualified for the task of bringing direction and correction the christians in this city he was called and commissioned to this and knowing the challenges that lay before timothy paul is writing faithfully to give encouragement and exhortation as much as possible because timid timothy needed as much support potentially as possible. Now the expectations, the house rules, as we will see, are are not necessarily minimal. We saw last week how Paul mirrored in a way the Ten Commandments as he sought to create a stark contrast between the ineffective speculation of people that led them to this false doctrine and introduced it to the church when you compare it to what God has directly revealed, what he has said, what has been revealed through Jesus Christ himself. And you may recall from last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, you can go onto YouTube and watch this, that these false doctrines primarily were coming from people who were searching through the myths and genealogies they were exposed to. They seemed to prefer exploring the boundaries of of expressions of faith rather than focusing on the core things that were laid out that God clearly expected that is true doctrine. So this was an issue in Ephesus, as well as in many of the cities in the region and around the world and even today. And Timothy in this letter is tasked with bringing correction. This week, we add one more piece to the puzzle, if you will, uh, that brings a little clarity, a little understanding to the letter. We've been introduced to the key people. We've been introduced to Timothy and Paul. But what about the city that Timothy's in? This is the city of Ephesus. Ephesus had existed for nearly a thousand years by the time Timothy... received this letter it was a major trade stop a valuable city to various people groups it was a metropolitan city so its citizenry if you will embraced a range of philosophies ideologies religious worship worshiping various gods the main god in ephesus was the goddess artemis who among her many attributes was primarily worshiped in ephesus in her role as a fertility goddess. The temple to Artemis in Ephesus had been built for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this. In fact, I think about 650 years the temple had been established. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And this is the same temple that in fact is referenced in Acts chapter 9. You might remember that Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And there's a great uproar among the citizens of Ephesus. And part of it is related to this Temple. At the time of this letter, Ephesus had grown to the third largest city in the Roman Empire, which makes it approximately, interestingly enough, the same size as St. Petersburg. That would be a very, very large city in the ancient world. The Roman Empire relocated many people to this area, citizens, retired soldiers, as well as other people groups. It was a common practice that further cemented Ephesus as a a breeding ground of pseudo-religions, Gnosticism, and, and collaboration or mixing of all sorts of myths and ideologies. This was on top of the well-established worship and temples that were already existed. Into this environment enters Timothy. He is encouraged to establish a haven, if you will, for true doctrine and to expose the false doctrine that was present in the church. Our series, which is called House Rules, uh, it's, part of this is recognizing whose house you're in. Uh, we don't make the rules if it's not our house. And so we're talking about God's house, God's rules. What does God expect? And our response should be trying to obey. Now, regardless of, of, of our culture and our metropolitan areas, ideologies and practices, aren't we called to, set a, uh, to a set of different rules that often seem to be countercultural? In this city, in Ephesus at this time, whose center we have found through archaeological diggings was filled with brothels and casinos. In this place, whose main temple and tourist attraction was dedicated to fertility and sexuality, whose Greek mystics mingled their thoughts with Far Eastern uh, mysticism and spirituality, here is a city and a region where the seduction of secular thought could, and as we, as we have seen, did infiltrate the church to the detriment of the church and understanding what God truly desired. Now, we tried uh, in the past couple of weeks to address the reality that this letter doesn't seem to contain instructions that are restricted to Ephesus during this time. It doesn't seem Paul's giving time stamped advice, but specific advice that would guide not simply Timothy, but the universal church in its thoughts. Now we know that it's the case that many of Paul's letters were circulated among the early churches. Uh, in fact, we know that there were way more letters than what we even have in the Bible being circulated around. Those that we have in our Bible are there because a group of church leaders met in Carthage in North Africa in the year 397 to pray about which ones they felt should be canonized. That means to be Come part of the Holy Scriptures. We know, though, that these letters were being collected in small groupings, incomplete, maybe something different than what we have, like a few new additions or subtractions. Uh, those were being circulated as early as the year 70. And we believe Paul died in the year 64 or 65. So from the earliest time, very quickly, the understanding of the early church and early church followers and leadership was this is useful. For all church instruction. Our view that this letter is useful for all churches and it's not specific to Timothy or Ephesus is built on nearly 2,000 years of Christian understanding and practice agreed on by those who lived closest to the time of Paul. Now, moreover, even if we didn't have that, the The way Paul ministered in his missionary journeys was very much going to these early churches, helping them process what are the ways to honor God through their practices through their leadership, establishing elders, things like that. And Timothy, in accompanying Paul on those trips, would have learned that kind of ministry, the ministry of bringing help and correction and structure to churches. So what do you think Timothy, in a position of leadership, would do with this letter after receiving it? Would he Hoard it and make it only about Ephesus, nothing in our understanding of Scripture and Paul and Timothy would give us any indication that would be the response. The fact he's in Ephesus only locates the immediate point of application, not the universal extent of the application of this letter. And so we believe that this uniformly applies to us today. And while some of the ways that the false doctrines were expressed at the time might be expressed differently now, the idea here is not just to make a, a laundry list of things to exclude, but to reinforce this idea that any and all ideologies that detract or distort or reject true doctrine are to be stood against so the question we should wrestle with just a little bit is there ever a time where it's not necessary to stand against false doctrine we in our time, in our culture, in our city, certainly have different practices. We have different mystic practices that mix, you know, far Eastern spirituality with what we believe. We have resurgent pagan influences all over the place. We have places of worship, we might not call them that, that elevate people and things above God. Ideologies that directly contradict God's will, God's house rules, but are strongly reinforced through social interaction or even edicts. People from all over, the world are coming together creating a diverse place for thought as well as belief to mingle and while our city center is not currently dominated by brothels and casinos we certainly we certainly spend money in questionable fashion as a culture as materialistic tendencies dictate action daily and and though we might not have brothels everywhere we have in fact rather than in the city center, invited every manifestation of sexuality as a culture and sexual deviance into our homes through the use of our screens, meaning even our phones, which perhaps makes this element that is addressed in Timothy more central culturally to us than it could be even said of someone in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And so we as Christians holding to true doctrine are exposed to so much and we have every opportunity thrown at us to water down our belief or for whatever good conscience God gives us to be compromised. And so we have every reason to come to Timothy and come to this teaching really eager, in fact, to see what help, does Paul give? So as we get into this passage, understand that the truth Paul has explained in the first 11 verses of the chapter are not applicable just then, but are universal in application. And so we should anticipate that there is some universal application today as well. So we're going to pick up with verse 12. It says here, This starts out as a reflection of the work that God has done in paul 's life last week. you might recall Paul showed his cards he He showed that a purpose of this letter, letter is to promote. True doctrine over false doctrine. He started sharing in verse 9 that the law helped reveal sin or false doctrine in that list that mirrored in many ways the Ten Commandments. He also went on to say that anything that doesn't conform to the gospel, this work of promoting true doctrine, of promoting the gospel, he says in verse 11 is something specifically that was entrusted to him by God. So when we move to verse 12, Paul is rightfully so somewhat reflective of how this came to be, that he, of all people, would be entrusted with this work. So he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he proceeds to break his thoughts down into groupings of three. And the first grouping is about how God has used him. He first says, Christ gives him strength. This seems straightforward. This is, uh, it describes a quality that is actively given to Paul to sustain him in ministry. It's a reflection of the absolute strength that was required to course correct his life from where he was going because everything in his life was oriented away from Christ, rejecting Christ. And when we phrase it this way, you recognize that we're not talking about Paul's Strength, we're talking about the strength of Christ. It was Christ. And this is probably included as an encouragement to Timothy when he faces tough times and says, Where does my strength come from? Who is my strength? My shield particularly as he faces the seductive forms that false doctrine would take within his context. Timothy certainly needs strength for the task, and we too still need strength for the task as we carry it on today. The second thing in this grouping of three, Jesus considers Paul trustworthy, which is at least partially based on the strengthening he has experienced by Christ to stay firm so that he can be trustworthy. Do you catch this? We believe that Paul writes these in this order for a reason. That the strength Christ gives precedes Paul being trustworthy. That that to be trustworthy in ministry, to sustain yourself in ministry requires not your own strength for that to be accomplished in your life, but the strength that only comes from Christ. So this is not a character reference when he's talking about trustworthiness, that that somehow qualified him for an extra dose of Jesus, for an extra calling. What we see is Jesus acted first so that Paul could become who Jesus calls him to be, which leads to the third thing. The third thing in this grouping is he's appointed to service And that builds on the previous two, that the reason he is adequate for the service he's called to, or the man for the job, is entirely through the work and preparation of Christ in choosing him. It was not about Paul's skill set or other qualifications. It was all about Jesus. When I read this and I reflect on my own life, I can't help but remember when I was in seminary and I was in my, my 20s, and... And I remember walking into one of our counselors at the seminary once just for a routine check-in. This was a common practice. It was on your calendar. You did this four times a semester. And I walked into this counselor's office in the morning I had no guilt, no trepidation. It was a normal check-in, nothing on my radar, nothing to repent of in my mind. And I came into her office, and it was more of a closet, it felt like, so you were in close proximity. I sit down, and she looks at me and says, Alex, you know what your problem is, which is a great way to start a conversation with one of your counselors in seminary. She said, you know what your problem is? You depend on yourself and you don't depend on God. And I don't know how long or if at all you could go in ministry living that way. I didn't come in thinking, man, I'm really struggling with pride I need to work on this. This is not on my radar. I'm blind to the fact, and it is by the grace of God that he intervened in my life and just the Holy Spirit dropped the hammer. I remember I was so broken by recognizing how far off I was from where God was calling me to that anytime, and I mean anytime, someone expressed dependence on God. So for example, even the most menial of prayers over a meal, I would weep i'd go to chapel services people are singing and praying how embarrassing there's alex weeping in two weeks two weeks of just brokenness and humbling through the holy spirit to teach me that to be trustworthy and sustained in ministry whose strength do i really rely on it has to be his and his alone Paul would go on to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is a treasure of immeasurable worth. But he says of this treasure in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. So how do you stay trustworthy? How do you stay strengthened through the service that God has called you to? It's through his strength, through his power. It's the only way. This is really good advice when you remember what timothy is being charged with so paul as he goes through this makes it clear that it's not on the basis of his actions that he's entrusted with this work or his character in fact in verse 13 he lays out the next three things the next grouping which is who he was apart from christ a blasphemer persecutor and a violent man a blasphemer in its simplest form is one who denies God or denies Jesus, whether denying God himself or or what God is doing, saying it's not that, it's not what you say it is. This manifests itself in many ways. You might recall that Jesus, after doing miracles, was approached by some of the Jewish leaders, and they asked him, by whose authority or by whose power do you do these things? The answer we know is God, by by the Father's will, by the Father's power. But they would not accept that answer. And Paul was the same way. In word and deed, he denied Christ publicly and privately. Therefore, he claims here the label blasphemer. But more than that, he was a persecutor. He did not merely make his views public, but opposed those who did believe, seeking to destroy their faith and thereby make them also to blaspheme. Paul is building a case that in every reasonable sense destroys any validity he could have for future ministry, let alone lead and be entrusted with protecting true doctrine. The third thing in this grouping was he was violent. He did not simply apply pressure through words, sanctions, and other means to get people to alter their choices or their allegiance, he approached those who carry true doctrine with violence, which is still the experience of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the world. And so this was not simply consistent pressure for them to deny Christ. This was a deny him or else approach, which as we saw in week one, when Pastor Kevin went to the background of of Paul and his ministry and his history, as we work through acts, we saw that Paul was part of the first Christian to be killed for their faith in Christ. If Paul were a lawyer seeking to prove his unsuitability to ministry, he could stop he 's made the case he 's won there's no argument against this, this defense except except that is precisely how powerful our God is and how great his grace is abundantly poured out which is by the way the thread of thought that Paul follows as we go into verse 15 we read in verse 15 here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here is the trustworthy saying. When things are out of your control, when you've struggled, when you've sinned, when your life has built a solid legal case that disqualifies you from being chosen by God, chosen for service in his kingdom, here is something that you should fully accept. And full acceptance is not the same as saying, this is a good idea. Or when you're feeling down or you're feeling like you're unqualified. Just think about this. That's not what full acceptance is. This means to endorse and fully embrace this truth. And it is universal in application, meaning every single person should fully endorse and fully embrace this truth. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which means people like us. And how do we know that includes us? Well, in the context of this passage, it included Paul, the worst of sinners. So clearly it includes includes me. And we don't think this is false humility. Like when I read this, Oh, I'm the worst. Don't you always feel like, oh, okay, I can I can think of a couple of people who are a little bit worse than you. You know, like, hey. But don't we feel that way? Don't we feel that way when we reflect on the depth of our own brokenness and our own sin and we just think on that, man, I'm the worst. I knew better. I should have known better, but I kept choosing that or I kept doing that. I, how was I so stupid? You... you you feel this, and Paul here is acknowledging how sinful he was and that he literally fought against the kingdom of God advancing. But for that very reason, he has shown mercy because if Jesus would choose the man who fought against himself to the degree of violence, threatening a church that was in its infancy, then couldn't God choose you? Couldn't God choose you? If the law is used to expose sin, For the unrighteous person, for the the person who sees themselves in the list of sins in verses 9 and 10 that Pastor James walked us through last week, God displays his patience to us in using us as an example for those who would believe in him. God is truly patient and great and gracious to use me, a prideful man with other vices as well. And the result should be that people who look at us are going to see God's strength, God's choice, God's mercy, God's patience, and be encouraged to believe also. And as we, as believers, reflect on this, it should move us to praise. That's who I was. But God, in his infinite patience, reached out and got me. Which leads us to verse 17 where out of nowhere it seems paul says now to the king eternal immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen we didn't even realize paul was praying like where did this come from like you didn't I, this came out of nowhere you realize this came out of nowhere like this came out of In response, it seems, to the life-altering truth he's reflecting on as he's sharing this, it seems he's reliving again the glory of God's salvation for him. And as he reflects on that, he is spontaneously breaking out into praise. Here is the king who is the king for all time. He is eternal and unlike everything around him that will decay and be destroyed He is immortal, impervious to death and decay. His glory is unmatched and though not currently seen, he is invisible. It is seen through creation, through us we read in other places and among a multitude of cheap and powerless deities. Here's the one authentic deity, the only God. And this is my God, the one who chose me to him, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Shouldn't this always be our response when we consider that we are counted among those who Jesus saves? Glory to him. It'd be a great spot to finish, but we're finishing, we're finishing the chapter today. So we're going to push on to, to verse 18. In verse 18, as Paul wraps up this opening, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Himenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So as we start closing the sermon, as well as chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul leaves some more encouragements for Timothy. He appeals to the relationship first. The, The literal word he uses in Greek is the one used of a biological son. Timothy is not Paul's biological son. But Timothy had followed Paul so closely in ministry that it seems of all the people Paul worked with, Timothy was the one he most expected to carry the torch, if you will. And so he appeals to this. In Philippians 2, verse 20 through 22, Paul writes to the church of Philippi talking about Timothy, and he says, "'I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself.'" Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. This bond between them is so strong that though he is not his biological son, he is his spiritual son in every sense. And much like a father, Paul is exhorting and telling Timothy, this is what you do. Paul tells Timothy as we close out to be ready for battle. The work of protecting true doctrine is going to be hard work with very real risk of burnout and failure. But here are two keys for success in this battle. A prophecy. Don't you wonder what this is? Which we don't know much about, and I really wish we knew exactly what it was. But we know a few things. We'll get to that. And then the second thing, holding on to faith and good conscience. In a few chapters regarding this prophecy, we'll hear that the elders had laid hands on Timothy, uh, and they were specially calling him to ministry. And we don't know the exact content of the prophecy, but we know that it's related to this, that there was this concrete moment. You are chosen. You are called. God wants you to do this. And if you are in a time of trial, you should reflect during those difficult times on an event like that. When you're thinking... God has chosen me for this time and place. I'm doing what He wants me to do, therefore, I am not going to quit, and He is the one who strengthens me. We should be thinking things like that. This mentality certainly leads into the second key to success that you have faith and good conscience. This strong belief that God is faithful and true and wise and providing through every circumstance and, and that the special calling was not a mistake. These things together is a big help. But when you add in this extra element of the good conscience, you see that it is something that truly sustains. Good conscience is a motivator toward right action. And this is indispensable if the key issue being combated is false doctrine that results in bad choices and bad actions taken by people. After all, don't we see it? It's the person who ignores their conscience again and again, who becomes calloused to their own sins, to their own bad choices. And it is probable that Paul is laying this out as an example to say, that, be like this, not like those who have had bad conscience, whose faith are described a shipwrecks. Did you catch this? This is maybe one of my favorite things in this, it shouldn't be my favorite thing in this chapter, but Paul names names. Do you, you notice this? Like, like so, much, so often we're like, you know, like some people, well, Paul's not shy at all. He's like, no, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, those two guys, those are exactly the two I'm talking about. These are here in the letter though, by virtue of them being believers who had been part of the church in Ephesus. These aren't people who were outside the church. These were people who were inside the church who would seem slowly welcomed these myths and genealogies into their life, ignoring whatever their conscience would say, whatever prompting the Holy Spirit would try to bring correction. They slowly lost true faith and lost true doctrine, so much so that Paul describes their faith as a shipwreck. And these are men who probably think they're fine, that they're okay. But Paul brings the conversation full circle by going back to his own lostness. And remember, he said of himself before Christ that he was a blasphemer. And he says, these men, that's basically where they're at now too. They're blasphemers. This is a thread we can't lose though. As Paul is instructing Timothy, what is he teaching? well he's he's teaching that you know how important it is to maintain you know true faith and to lose it could result in so strong an action as being handed over to Satan it's the encouraging word from the Lord you came for today I know <laughs> and to be handed over to Satan is the idea of excommunication that someone would be sufficiently separated from the community of grace that is the church that they begin to reflect more strongly and fervently on the nature of who God is, or at least was for them. Like, how do they wander from the truth so much that they're under this kind of discipline, this separation? And hopefully through that process, a desire is ignited to be reconciled to God and reintegrated into the church in a chapter that does focus so much on sin The idea isn't to create a list of these are the people we exclude. That's not the point. The point is that we should be pursuing unity and true doctrine in a community that expresses fully and accurately the will of our Father. When I lived in Colorado, by the way, I used to live in Colorado. uh, uh, I knew a guy named Carl who, earlier in his life, had been a, a major burn victim. A, uh, just really uh, a horrible situation through a series of surgeries and skin grafts and things like that. Uh, when you looked at Carl, you didn't know he was a major burn victim. Where all the where all the most evident you know scars and things were was always covered by clothing, and. and you know it also gets very, very cold in Denver? (laughs) Not like here. It gets very cold. And so Carl looked normal, and he acted normal, except for when it was cold outside. Then Carl would look normal, but he stopped acting normal. You see, through the course of so much of his body being burned, it had damaged so many of his nerves that he could not feel cold which i shouldn't have to tell you how incredibly dangerous that is living in a place that can get very very cold in fact very life-threatening and so you would see situations where carl would wander outside once in a while and it could be 15 degrees and he's working in a t-shirt and if he hasn't checked the weather and no one yells at him carl it's 15 degrees get inside it's cold out he has no idea There's nothing in his body to signal that he is in a bad spot. Our nerves, in many ways, are a little bit like our conscience. That you need your conscience working to keep you from getting in a bad situation where you're going to be hurt and damaged. But unlike Carl's nerves, most of us haven't had our conscience totally desensitized in one go. But it's when we ignore our conscience in one area again and again. And then it makes it easier to ignore our conscience in another area again and again. And suddenly our conscience, which is supposed to be an asset, becomes a liability because it's no good and doesn't keep us safe. We can go on and ignore it until we find ourselves in a place where we have wholly rejected things we used to embrace, even if it's a secret that we're embracing something, a secret sin, an addiction, an unhealthy habit that you know is not God-honoring. And in more reflective moments, if you're honest, you probably strongly wish or desire that you could go back in time before when saying no on living pure was easier. Sometimes when you ignore these promptings, your conscience or the Holy Spirit, enough. You end up moving to the place where you're more in the realm of the blasphemer. You're more in the realm of that person's faith. It's a shipwreck. So what if you feel separated? Separated? What if you know that you've been ignoring your conscience and maybe you've been sitting and allowing certain things you know are questionable or you know are definitely wrong to continue in your life. And sermons that call out sin are a definite discomfort for you to hear. This is what you are needing to hear today, that the preaching of true doctrine is not a a teaching to separate you more, but is a teaching to call you back to repentance and to return to the unity of true doctrine in the body of Christ. There is a better way, and God has a plan for you that is better, more fulfilling, maybe not easier, but definitely more purposeful, and you are not disqualified because you broke some of the Ten Commandments or because your conscience is is compromised. Jesus chose the worst of sinners, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Paul teaches Timothy the importance of fighting for true doctrine, and it's appropriate that in the first chapter, the part of true doctrine that he expresses as the trustworthy saying is this Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like Paul. And sinners like me, like you, like your kids, parents, and neighbors, your friends, your hairstylist, your mechanic, your tax pro, your nemesis, your rival, local cops, and local drug dealers, your local whatever. And also while we're at it, it doesn't even have to be your or local. It is everyone. Jesus came to save the lost. So this word from Timothy is for you, this word is for others, and as God uses you, and let's just say it, you're the second, third, or fourth worst of sinners, since Paul already claimed number one, Uh, God chooses you and his patience with you in the midst of whatever sin, whatever brokenness, whatever blindness that you had, God's patience with you along with his grace, grace is a witness to others. So how do we display this patience to others? How do we share this light? And maybe the best way is just to imitate imitate the same attitude that we see God using in us, for us. That those who are in our circles, who are caught in lies and deceit, false doctrine, that we continue to earnestly and patiently seek God's truth to be revealed in their lives recognize though that over the course of these sermons not everyone is picking out that's where i'm in the list that's where i'm falling short some of you might be blessed right now and you're at a place where god is so faithful and you're in a place where you're invigorated every single day that you're walking humbly before god serving him well that there's not some blatant sin praise god in your life right now but who is it that strengthens us so that we are trustworthy for service? Don't be like the prideful Alex in seminary who thought he could do it on his own because when things are going well and you feel like things are in hand, that is the danger. And so there's still something for every one of us here. And as we reflect on god's great power to save each one of us it should turn us to spontaneous praise and should motivate us to share this truth that there is a god who saves with those who need to hear first timothy has a message for us all let's pray together that we'll listen